Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A few kilometres off the coast of Scotland, not far from the capital, Edinburgh, lies a small, rocky island. The Bass Rock is the world's largest northern Gannet colony, so it's quite a spectacular site to see. Normally we would expect to have 150,000 birds on the colony. Susan Davis is the chief executive of the Scottish Seabird Centre. The rock over the winter when the birds are away for the winter is quite sort of dark looking. But when you get back to the, the spring and the summer months, as the birds start to return, the rock becomes progressively whiter and whiter because of the, the number of birds. In the summer of 2022, the gannets that had made their annual migration to Bass Rock were faced with a new threat. Come the end of May, the beginning of June last year, we started to see signs of gannets being affected by avian flu on the Bass Rock. And the situation just then continued to unfold throughout the summer, initially with lots of dead birds being washed up ashore, a lot more than you would normally expect to see. And then also on the colony itself, we saw significant numbers of dead and dying birds too. One day in June revealed 5,000 dead birds on that single day. It was a very visual experience. You know, witnessing birds dying as well was a really horrible experience. I've worked in nature conservation for 30 years. I have never seen this in these seabird colonies. The disease causing problems is avian influenza, H5N1. And gannets are far from the only bird at risk from the virus in this part of Scotland. Herring gulls and puffins could also be decimated. We know that puffins are already at risk of extinction. If avian flu was to get into the puffin colonies, then we really have a serious situation unfolding. It does make us more anxious about what will happen when many of the seabirds return this spring. H5N1 is not just affecting birds. Towards the end of 2022, an outbreak of the virus was reported at a mink farm in northern Spain. The outbreak happened back in October, but in January, genetic sequencing revealed these animals had been infected with a new strain of H5N1, one that seems to allow avian flu to spread more easily mammal to mammal. More than 50,000 mink at the facility had to be culled. And in early February, sea lions in Peru became infected. Peru said that 585 sea lions have died of the H5N1 bird flu virus in recent weeks. The sea lions appear to have been feasting on dead, infected birds. H5N1 has infected mammals many times in the past, but the scale of the current outbreak has been ringing alarm bells. The World Health Organization issued a warning a few days ago. The recent spillover to mammals needs to be monitored closely and we must prepare for any change in the status quo. H5N1 is a worrying, highly pathogenic virus. 
It has infected and killed people in the past as well, but so far it hasn't been able to spread between humans. The current outbreak, though, the largest ever recorded, is so widespread that it increases the chances that the H5N1 virus might mutate into a variant that could be much more dangerous to people. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. Today, we'll look at why the current outbreak of avian flu is causing worry for so many people. Could H5N1 cause the next pandemic? And if so, what, if anything, can we do about it? The H5N1 avian flu virus has existed for decades. To understand the threat posed by it, I spoke to a virologist who's been keeping a closer eye on the virus than most, Professor Ian Brown. He's the Director of Scientific Services at Britain's Animal and Plant Health Agency. This current strain of H5N1 is highly efficient at transmitting and spreading amongst birds. And because of its establishment in wild birds, it's been able to spread around the globe very fast. Can you just explain how H5N1 travels around the populations of birds around the world? Yeah, so the key hosts for bird flu spread in terms of wild populations are ducks and geese. They are able to shed very large quantities of virus when they become infected into the environment and pass that on to other birds, either through direct contact or through the environment that they live in. This virus can also then spill over into other populations, such as gulls, which are quite ubiquitous and they move quite considerable distances. And then other water birds, such as swans, but also including birds that predate on ducks and geese, such as birds of prey, eagles, hawks and falcons. And in this way, as these birds move through their normal behaviour, through migration, they can carry the virus with them to new areas and that can trigger new infection in local indigenous birds. So you've got a cascade effect through bird migration and spread through wild birds. That means the virus can transmit between continents. Now, what are the symptoms of H5N1 in birds? You can get a range of symptoms. You can get respiratory distress. Quite often you'll get an enteric disease, but more often than not, the birds will become listless and they will have neurological symptoms. So they'll be showing signs of incoordination, for instance, which is a consequence of the fact that the virus is able to replicate and spread throughout the whole bird through all of its body tissues. Ultimately, the virus in most of these birds will reach the brain And the birds sadly die of probably multi-organ failure. And what is the actual fatality rate in birds? It's very difficult to be precise on estimates. So if the virus is in a flock of chickens that are naive, i.e. they haven't got previous immunity, then it will be up to 100% of the birds will become infected and die. This is a highly lethal virus in some species. 
particularly in poultry species. But in some populations of wild birds, we know there can be a very significant death toll. And indeed, we're seeing that now in populations around the world. The difficult part to know is how many birds get infected and survive infection. We have evidence that not all birds succumb and die, but they're a very large proportion. Okay, and that's why this outbreak has been so devastating. It's pretty hard to calculate the numbers uh, for wild birds, but around 15 million domestic birds have died from bird flu in the past 15 months, and around 200 million have been culled to prevent the virus from spreading. I mean, that's surely having an impact on farming and economies in general, isn't it? In terms of the global impact economically on disease, well, there's a huge burden because the effect of the virus in poultry populations has high consequence. There's an impact for the producer of those birds because those birds get sick and they die. So there are threats in some parts of the world to food security because poultry is an important source of protein for humans. Now, that's still a relatively small proportion of total poultry production across the globe. But nevertheless, it has a very significant impact on rural economies because there's associated measures to control the disease that have a negative impact for those who keep and rear birds. Bird flu is the common yearly occurrence, but why is it that the current epidemic of bird flu is different and has people a bit more worried, perhaps? Yeah, the key to why the current strain of bird flu is causing such large problems is the fact that the virus is very efficient at spreading and infecting wild birds. So it's a numbers game. We have many more wild birds affected. We have many more species of wild bird affected. And add that to the fact that the virus can maintain for some considerable period of time in the environment at different temperatures. So that creates what we call greater infection pressure. More birds, more virus shed, more risk that that virus will find its way into cat birds and into poultry farms. And because of that breadth of populations affected, that's enabled the virus to maintain itself all the way through the year, instead of just being a virus that appears with migratory birds coming in autumn and then disappearing when they leave in the spring. So in Northern Hemisphere, we've seen year-round infection. And that's simply because of the consequence of many more wild birds being infected. And then, of course, that leads to increased risk for spillover into poultry farms. Do we know why this particular outbreak has these kinds of dynamics that you've just described? Why is it so much more infectious and it's able to spread to more species and so on? We're researching that right now, together with other collaborators in the UK and around the world. What's been happening with this virus over the last three, four years is that it's been subtly changing. It can shuffle its genetic segments with other flus in wild birds. And it may be that when they shuffle and inherit different gene segments from other flu viruses, it improves what we call their fitness, their ability to infect and spread from one bird to another. We're getting the first indications that this virus is what we call a very fit virus. It's got a high propensity to infect. They shed more virus potentially, and that virus is very efficient at attaching and replicating in new hosts. So we're trying to identify the precise markers that indicate this. But an infected bird does produce an awful lot of virus, and it carries a lot of virus, which is why we've seen very recently some spillover into mammal species, which predate and scavenge infected 
sick and dead wild birds. Now, obviously, culling birds, especially poultry, that might be infected is one way of trying to stop the spread of the virus. But is there anything else that can be done? Is destroying the birds the only way? No, there are lots of things that can be done to mitigate infection. In fact, the first important thing is what we call biosecurity. That's hygiene practices where you're rearing or keeping birds. Things like, you know, changing your boots if you walk into a poultry house, making sure you go through disinfectant dips so you don't carry the virus in on your boots or your clothing. So there's some quite strict protocols. The houses that the birds are kept in need to be secure, not open to the environment because there's a risk that wild birds can access. So anything that allows contact directly or indirectly with wild birds carries a risk of disease spread. Obviously, there are other mechanisms as well such as vaccination, which is being used in some parts of the world, uh, with variable success. Can you just explain a bit how you vaccinate a bird? Some of these are injectable at the moment, but the idea would be if you have 100,000 birds to vaccinate in a flock, picking each one up and injecting it is probably quite impractical. So you need to look at what we call delivery systems. How can you take the vaccine to the bird so that it takes the vaccine in and then develops an immune response? So it's not an easy fix, but it obviously is an important and useful tool. What other delivery mechanisms are being investigated or that, that might work? Well, there's other vaccines that are used in poultry that are given in what we call day-old chicks, so spray vaccination. You can vaccinate through drinking water or you can vaccinate in the hatchery. So the eggs, before they hatch, you can actually vaccinate in through the eggshell. That's called Innova. We've been hearing reports recently that this strain of bird flu has been spreading to mink in Spain, sea lions in Peru. How does the virus get to those sorts of creatures? I mean, it clearly has infected mammals in the past, but not maybe to the extent it has this time around. And I just wonder if we know why that transmission is going on. Well, it comes back again to the numbers. So many more wild birds infected, many different populations of wild bird infected, And that gives an opportunity for contact with other populations that perhaps wouldn't normally come into contact with infected birds. So in the case of the mink farm, there's uncertainty how the virus entered the mink farm. But one possibility being investigated is that these mink farms don't have the high standards of hygiene on them. They have open-sided houses and you have gulls and other birds scavenging and living in the vicinity of the farm. So if those birds, in theory, were infected with bird flu, they could pass the virus to the mink, and then one mink can pass the virus to another. In terms of the sea lions in South America, we don't know yet whether that virus has moved from one sea lion to another. We don't have evidence of that. But what we do know is that there are significant numbers of birds dying in that region. And we know that sea lions will they'll eat sick and dead birds. So that is the way they are getting exposed to those viruses. So it's simply that because there's many more birds infected around the world, and now we're also aware of the possibility that mammals that can share habitat or eat sick and dead birds can become infected, we're actively looking more closely and monitoring the situation. Ian, thank you very much for your time. Okay, thank you. The outbreak in sea lions could have been an unlucky coincidence. Several mammals there feasted on infected, dead birds. 
It seems less likely, though, that coincidence can explain the outbreak at the Spanish mink farm last year. Avian flu viruses don't often cause outbreaks in mammals. Genetic sequencing of the viruses in the mink outbreak, though, suggests that a new variant of the H5N1 virus was involved. The jury is still out, however, on whether or not mammals such as mink or sea lions can actually spread the virus between themselves. If this type of virus could spread between mammals, the results could be catastrophic. To understand why, we need to know the history of this avian influenza. H5N1 has been around in birds since the 1960s, but the highly pathogenic strain, the one that everyone is nowadays worried about, was first identified in waterfowl in southern China in 1996. The following year, the virus appeared in poultry farms across China and Hong Kong. H5N1 went on to cause more than 860 infections in people, half of whom died. The avian influenza virus is deadly to people, but it's not caused a pandemic yet because it can't be transmitted between humans. To do that, it would need to develop several genetic mutations. For example, the virus needs to become airborne and therefore more able to spread between people via a cough or a sneeze. The influenza pandemics of the past century and a half have all been viruses of the H1, H2 or H3 subtypes. The H numbers are simply labels for the different protein structures of different strains of the virus. In 1918, the H1N1 strain killed at least 50 million people around the world. A variant of H1N1 reappeared in 2009, causing the swine flu pandemic. On the basis of available evidence, and these expert assessments of the evidence, the scientific criteria for an influenza pandemic have been met. I have therefore decided to raise the level of influenza pandemic alert. People worldwide were wearing masks. Schools were closed across the country. Soccer games were played in empty stadiums. The virus did take a deadly toll. Starting in April of 2009 and over roughly the next year, there were almost 61 million cases in the U.S. and more than 12,000 deaths. Globally, the data was just as dire. There were more than 1.4 billion cases of H1N1 and more than a half million deaths, according to one CDC estimate. H5N1 has had health experts concerned ever since it was discovered, largely because of its high fatality rate. Of course, we don't know what the dynamics of a human H5N1 virus would be, how ill it would make people, how easily it would spread, because the virus would have to evolve to become a human pandemic pathogen. Nevertheless, H5N1 has long been on the list of candidates for the next big pandemic. Have we finally reached the point where that might become a reality? And if so, are we prepared? That's all coming up. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. 
Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today on Babbage, we're investigating the pandemic potential of H5N1 avian influenza, which has been tearing through the populations of birds and some mammals over the past year. Since October 2021, there have been hundreds of cases of H5N1 infecting mammals, but so far there's been limited evidence that mammals themselves can actually transmit the virus between each other. Nevertheless, the World Health Organization's warning last week was stark. WHO recommends countries strengthen surveillance in settings where humans and farmed or wild animals interact. WHO is also continuing to engage with manufacturers to make sure that, if needed, supplies of vaccines and antivirals would be available for global use. So how worried should we be? To answer that, I spoke to Professor Marion Koopmans, who's one of the world's most renowned experts on emerging diseases. I started by asking her if the H5N1 infections in mammals raised any concerns about the virus kicking off a human pandemic. Well, yes, it does. So the spread among birds already was unprecedented, but particularly the stories about transmission into a mink farm in Spain, where it really looks like there was a spread between animals. So that is a kind of a warning sign because that's what these viruses normally do not do. And we do see that as an indication of that potentially could also happen in people. It's not the case currently and it died out, but yeah, it is a concern. Now, it's not always the case, of course, that viruses in animals spread directly into humans. Often they'll spread through intermediary species. Which other animals do you think we should be looking out for and watching in case it spreads into them, which raises the risk of it spreading into people? Well, we know from past influenza pandemics that they have originated either from avian influenza directly from birds with some mutations or after mixing with viruses from pigs and that happened then in pigs. So pigs would definitely be the animals where I think we need to put up our surveillance. Pigs because they're closer to humans in terms of anatomies and the fact they're both mammals. They are both mammals, but also pigs are special in that they are susceptible both to human viruses and to bird viruses. And we do see that the barrier for spillover between pigs and humans is not that high. So if the bird viruses make it successfully into a pig farm and replication in pigs, that lowers the threshold for a further spillover into humans. How would you assess the level of risk for humans at the moment with the current um, outbreak of H5N1? Well, that has been looked at by many different organizations, for instance, the European CDC. And the current agreement is that the level of risk is low for people just out in the community, but moderate for people directly working with birds, for instance. But 
the director of the World Health Organization, also has really called out for attention and alert to keep a close watch on this virus. Is there any way of predicting the spillover between different species and the enhanced ability of a virus to sort of transmit between members of that new species? Well, there have been studies in the past looking at what type of properties these H5 viruses need to have to become transmissible. Those were studies looking in ferrets. And that's just a handful of mutations that do something about the exact way the viruses can infect and then be released within an animal. And ferrets have for long been used as a model animal to study human influenza viruses. So that's the evidence we have. Those set of mutations, changes to the virus that is predicted to make the viruses more transmissible. But exactly how it would potentially spread in people, we don't know. There was some research from your laboratory a few years ago which looked at how many mutations you'd have to have in the H5N1 virus to allow it to become airborne and transmit between people. I suppose the the model was ferrets, actually. Yeah, and that's an important distinction. So it was studied in ferrets. We assume that that predicts how it would behave when the virus would infect people, but we don't know that for sure. But it was clear indeed that it was just a very small number of mutations that actually could really change the properties of this virus. If I remember correctly, it was five mutations from the wild type in 2012. Correct. And some of those mutations had already been seen in the wild individually in different versions of the virus. But I wonder, the modern version, I suppose it will be genetic analysis of them all that will work out whether those five mutations have taken place, I guess, isn't it? Yes, so we've seen just the explosion, as I would say, of genomic surveillance. So far, what we're not getting enough is uh, information on the situation in wild birds. That's more complicated. You have to go out, you have to maybe catch birds or sample them, sample dead birds. Of course, that has to be done very carefully. So there's not a whole lot of information yet, but that's one of the things that I would like to see ramped up so that we know how this virus is evolving. Have any of the genetic sequences of the viruses that have infected the mink or the sea lions been released yet to understand how many of the sort of potentially dangerous mutations have happened? Yes, some sequences have been released and we have seen mutations that are of that risk. So one particular mutation that we know makes it easier for the virus to replicate in humans, but it's only one. It's certainly not the whole spectrum, but that's exactly what needs to happen. And this has happened in the mink farm outbreak, but also in some other instances in foxes. So it looks like that particular mutation is popping up quite easily. Now, the past three years, we've seen um, all sorts of people promise to prepare the world better for future pandemics. And I just wonder, from your point of view as a scientist who is steeped in this information, are we better prepared now for the unlikely event that H5N1 does spill over into people and is able to transmit between them? Well, yes, I do think in some senses. First of all, we already have a long history of tracking influenza and a system 
at the level of the World Health Organization that looks at viruses circulating globally to see is there something out there that could be of increased concern. And they've also looked at these H5 viruses and already said, hey, there's viruses for which we really need a strain that could be used to start off vaccine production if needed. So that process is already in place for influenza. We didn't have that in place at the start of the corona pandemic. So it's a big difference. We also have learned to ramp up diagnostics very fast, and that's an advantage. So those are things that are better. What I do worry about is the fatigue that we see everywhere. People are tired of talking about viruses. Politicians are tired. Clinicians are tired. But that's something we cannot afford because nature is around us and viruses keep evolving. So we have to keep being alert on what it takes in case of a unlikely scenario evolving to be prepared. Can I ask you about potential treatments and vaccines if H5N1 does become a pandemic threat? What kinds of drugs or vaccines for people are in the works, if at all? Well, there is, uh, for influenza, there has been studies looking into vaccines for pandemics, for pre-pandemic vaccine portfolio. So that is in place. But with the success of the rapid development of the pandemic vaccines in COVID, some of the companies that developed, for instance, the mRNA vaccines are now also exploring flu vaccination and pandemic flu vaccination. And that, of course, would be new concepts that, again, need to be tested before they could be used in a global scale. So that's in place. For treatments, there's not a whole lot. The treatment that has been evaluated in the past is, for instance, ozoltamivir, and countries have even stockpiled that drug for a potential pandemic scenario. What we do know is that it does have some effect, but there is a practical, very difficult <laughs> uh, challenge in that you, you really have to give the drug very early in the infection for it to have most effect. And that requires a system of very rapid testing and then giving the drug to people that are at risk. And that system is not so easy to establish. If you were to zoom out and think about the way that the H5N1 virus is currently spreading, the possible risks of spillover, the potential vaccines or other things that we have to deal with it, and obviously the recent knowledge from COVID-19, how do you think the world would cope with a hypothetical H5N1 pandemic virus? Well, if it happened on short term, I think we would still struggle. And that's why I do think it's important to talk about this and to see what do we need in place. There is programs now at the World Health Organization level to look at this for Ebola and for Lassa fever. Those are very severe, very rare diseases that may cause big outbreaks with high impact. And that's where they are looking at, can we already work on vaccines? Can we already do the first studies and trials so that we have something ready to go on the shelf. I do think we have to get that back on the agenda for influenza as well. And now that these viruses have moved globally, we certainly really need to take this very seriously. 
as this develops and you see the virus spreading and different animals are infected, where will you be watching for signs of concern? You know, where are you sort of most worried about in terms of where this virus goes from here? So I would be watching farm animals. I would really like to see more emphasis on surveillance on mink farms. There is mink farms in different parts of the world and the same in pig farms. And that combined, of course, with alert testing in humans, looking for very unusual disease. Of course, fortunately, if a person would get infected with an H5 influenza virus, the tests that are used routinely in hospitals all over the world would most likely pick that up. Not that it is an unusual influenza virus, but that that is a flu virus. So what you would want to see is if people come in with very severe flu, that that really gets checked. Is this one of those H5 viruses or not? Marion, you've watched this field for a very long time and you've you know seen multiple H5N1 outbreaks before. It's the one that everyone seems to be most concerned about when it starts to sort of spread around the world. How would you rate your concern this year and this outbreak with previous ones in the past couple of decades? Well, I'm worried. <laughs> I agree with the assessment of the European CDC that the direct immediate risk is not high. But there's just so much opportunity because this virus now is global and it is causing massive deaths in wild birds with opportunity for scavengers, mammals to get infected. So there's just too much opportunity for me to not be worried about it. Are you more worried than you have been before about this virus? Well, yes, because of the opportunity, the global opportunity. I don't think... I don't know, but I don't think this virus is particularly more transmissible or anything, but it's just the opportunity is just so massively increased with this global spread. So we are looking at a new situation for that reason. Marion, thank you very much for your time. Yes, you're welcome. Now, when someone like Marion is more worried than ever, that's something to take very seriously. It really is conceivable that H5N1 could be the next pandemic. And if we're already seeing mammal-to-mammal transmission, that's a very plausible intermediate step in the virus's evolution towards human-to-human transmission. So how serious would an avian flu pandemic be compared to COVID-19? And do we have the right tools in our arsenal this time to deal with it? I think this one is nowhere near what COVID was, at least for now. Slavea Chankova is The Economist's healthcare correspondent. But we need to be prepared for anything, really, because it's hard to predict which way things will go. You know, it may be just five mutations away, but oftentimes this variant may be replaced by others, which are even less likely to mutate, to spread among humans. We've seen some of that happen with H5N1 in the past. On the flip side, there have been several avian flu viruses that have caused human flu pandemics in the past. So there's always a chance that this may happen. Whether this will be the next one, nobody really knows for sure. Okay, well, let's look at how to prepare for it then. How quickly could we get an H5N1 vaccine out? For COVID, there was nothing at all. We had no idea how long it would take it. We were just lucky that the mRNA vaccines came along quickly and then the ones from Oxford as well. How long would it take for an H5N1 vaccine to be made for people? 
It will be much slower than it is for a vaccine against a new COVID variant, just because, as you said, the technology is different. So the flu shots are manufactured differently. So they are made in eggs, kind of using an older technology. We don't yet have an mRNA flu jab. It's on its way, though, is it? Or people are trying, aren't they? They're definitely trying, but it's unclear whether, you know, one will be ready soon. Hopefully, yeah, that will be a game changer. But unless we have an mRNA flu jab, it will take some time. When SARS-CoV-2 came along, literally no one in the world had come across it. Um, So no one's immune system was ready for it. And therefore, it caused a tremendous amount of problem and everyone had to sort of protect themselves from it. I mean, flu has been around for a long, long, long time. And of course, H5N1 is relatively new, but other versions of flu have been around for a long time. So is that a positive thing for people worried about a potential pandemic? It's very much a positive thing because you have certain age groups that will have some immunity depending on which flu viruses have been circulating when they were alive. So as we saw with the swine flu pandemic, for example, it affected primarily younger people, which was unusual. And that was because older people have had exposure to related flu viruses. So they had some immunity. And it's quite possible that that's the case with a version of H5N1 that starts to transmit among humans, because the N1 bit is is something that is already part of circulating seasonal flu viruses. So many virologists think that there will be considerable immunity. And in order to have a pandemic, you need lots of people to have no immunity whatsoever to the new version. Yeah. And I suppose even if it's a small amount of immunity, a small percentage, when you scale that up to the size of the world, that's going to be quite a lot of people who potentially could either be less sick or not need to go to hospital or be a barrier to spreading it, for example, which we had none of that for COVID-19. Yeah, exactly. So with COVID, we started from zero and the flu is nothing like that at all. So before COVID-19 came along, in all the writing I've ever done about potential pandemics, people always worried about influenza. That was going to be the, the big pandemic. And H5N1 was always the influenza virus that everyone was worried about because it's so pathogenic and dangerous. And of course, it's not spilled over into humans. It doesn't transmit between humans. With your knowledge of what's happened with COVID and the systems that have been set up and the technologies that were created to deal with it, are we in a better position now than we were, let's say, five years ago when H5N1 really was the number one thing that everyone worried about? We're absolutely in a better position because there's so much, you know, I call it institutional memory, if you will, of how you deal with a scary new virus, you know, one that has very high mortality, like what COVID had at the beginning before we had drugs and vaccines. So we have better testing. We also have just the population knowledge of what you can do to protect yourself, wearing masks, washing hands, staying home. So even if there is no lockdown, if there is a flu virus, which is, you know, quite deadly, people will do what it takes to protect themselves. And of course, you know, not all of them will. I was going to say there is pandemic fatigue exactly. yeah, as well, isn't there? Yeah. Because there's not only people getting bored of the whole thing, which is a valid concern in some respects. There's the economic problems. And then, of course, you've got the people who definitely think that none of this was a a useful use of our time and and resources and and, and will not follow any rules in the future. So perhaps there could be a rebound effect. I mean, I'm just spitballing here, but I wonder if that could be an issue. It will be an issue, but I I do believe that at least some people will 
pull back and try to protect themselves, and that will slow things down. And we're already seeing that with COVID now. You know, there are no restrictions, for example, in England, but we know that some of the last COVID waves, the curve was flattened by people's behavior, like completely voluntary. You know, when they saw that the numbers of infections were rising, they just took measures to prevent getting infected. So this was, to me, proof that although not everybody will do that, a considerable number of people will, and that number may be so big that it will actually make a difference in the spread of the virus. And unlike COVID, things like washing your hands will actually work to stop spreading the virus too, <laughs> because those rules and regulations and, and practices were, were designed specifically for influenza, because we know exactly how it spreads through yes. the air. Exactly. <laughs> and on your hands and all of those yes. things. Yeah, the flu is much more amenable to hand washing. Yeah, exactly. Slavea, thank you very much. And hopefully it will be a bit more time before we have you back on to explain how H5N1's now become even more dangerous or got into pigs or something. Fingers crossed that won't happen. Um, it's worth reminding listeners that if you want to read more about H5N1 or how to predict pandemics, you can do so in The Economist. There's some links in the show notes. Now, Slavea, before you go, let me ask you, aside from bird flu, is there anything else you've been reading in The Economist recently? One piece that I found quite interesting from the recent selection was a piece about how commonly used and quite expensive fertility tests for women don't actually work. Don't work at all. Yes. So that to me was one of those things in medicine that are so widely used and assumed to work. And actually, when you do the proper studies, it turns out they're, they're pretty useless. Sending people down the wrong road completely. <laughs> yes. And, and just making them pay lots of money because a lot of that is paid out of pocket. It's not covered. Well, okay. Well, you can read that story by taking out a subscription. Just go to economist.com slash podcast offer to get a great introductory deal. Slavia, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Our thanks also to Susan Davis, Ian Brown, and Marion Koopmans. And thank you for listening to Babbage. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin, with mixing and sound design this week by James Stickland. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Cha, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.